Uh, before we start, I should warn you that I've just returned from having my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine, so there is every chance that I may start talking complete gibberish. How will you tell I hear you ask? How oh, indeed. <laughs> Welcome to episode seven of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we snap the elastic on our rotating bow tie, pull on our baggy trousers, don our absurdly elongated shoes and hit the accelerator in our clown car as it hurtles towards the salon of great literature. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the Mathematical Mystery series published by Farago Books. My guest today is fellow member of Team Farago, Paul Flower, author of the way too close for comfort satire, The Great American Cheese War. I'm really excited about this because he's my first guest from across the Atlantic, which therefore means that this podcast is now officially a worldwide phenomenon. Paul was born and raised in Michigan and still resides there. He has been writing professionally for more than 37 years. While much of his career has been spent in advertising and marketing, he worked in broadcasting for a short time. Paul has one previously published novel, The Redeeming Power of Brain Surgery, to his credit, and his writing has appeared in national and regional magazines. He and his wife have four grown children and a rapidly evolving number of incredibly beautiful and intelligent grandchildren. Paul has also had his second Pfizer injection, which means that for the purposes of this podcast, we can actually merge our brains together over the global 5G network. Exciting stuff. Welcome, Paul. Hi, thank you for having me, Jonathan. I'm, I'm not really talking to you. I'm just communicating to you through my brain. It's yeah, interesting. It's, it's, it's a weird experience. It's sort of fizzing. Very strange. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and we'll, <laughs> we can rewind and play it back later, just in our yeah, heads. Absolutely. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> well, we'll talk more. We'll talk more later about Paul and his work. But for now, we're going to talk about his chosen book, Catch 22, which if I read the intro, the first paragraph of Wikipedia to give us an introduction to it. Catch-22 is a satirical war novel by American author Joseph Heller. He began writing it in 1953. The novel was first published in 1961. Often cited as one of the most significant novels of the 20th century, it uses a distinctive non-chronological third-person omniscient narration describing events from the points of view of different characters. The separate storylines are out of sequence, so the timeline develops along with the plot. And... I should actually, one other thing I might point out before we go along is that uh, it has 174,269 words, making it by a long way the largest book we've uh, done on this uh, podcast and probably likely to do. So Paul's first challenge is to summarize it as best you can. Over to you. <laughs> <laughs> and my, I begin with an apology, had no idea. Uh, just what an endeavor this would be to ask you to read it and, and also to ask myself to read it. We're both busy people, and I, I appreciate that you dove into it. it. It is an epic American novel. I have to admit that it, it has vastly influenced me in ways I didn't realize. Now, you know, I like you, I probably read it the first time in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. I... Uh, 
not not to give anything away, but I think we're similar in age. And I and I was at an age where people were assigning books to me that were kind of provocative and interesting. And I, I remember reading this, had no idea how it would influence my own sense of humor and, and sense of writing. But he was a copywriter at an ad agency, which is interesting because mm-hmm. that's what I've spent my life doing. But to summarize it is Catch-22 is really a book about a lot of things and like good satire, what it is allegedly about in its plot and its story is slightly different from what I think the the real message and the real meaning behind it is, the message and meaning are. But at the heart of it is a young man named Yossarian, who is a soldier in the Army Air Force during World War II, stationed on an island off the coast of Italy, I believe. And he, not unlike the author, who was also in a similar situation in World War II, Joseph Heller, uh, Yossarian is asked to fly routine ongoing bombing missions and in Europe d- during the war. And he is, he is at a point where he is just completely tired and, and tired of the threat of death, tired of the bombing missions. And his commander, Colonel Cathcart, has a thing for raising the number of bombing missions required before you can stop flying bombing missions and go home. Right when you reach the current number of required missions, the colonel raises them again. And uh, Yossarian is at war with the war and with his colonel over this issue and and is morbidly, (laughs) nice use of the term, (laughs) afraid of the whole process. He's he's terrified that he's going to die. And he's convinced that's that someone's trying to kill him, which of course is at the heart of the kind of circular, ambiguous writing that that drives the book, because as he puts it, the enemy is everybody who's going to get you killed, no matter who's which side he's on. And that includes Colonel Cathcart. And don't forget that, because the longer you remember it, the longer you might live. In essence, you're if you're in the war zone, everybody is trying to kill you, including your commander, because he keeps asking you to fly. <laughs> yeah, that sets it up nicely. I mean, the, the, the narrative is very distinctive, isn't it? Because it, it's it's fragmented where you get an apparently brief reminiscence or, or, or some sort of foreshadowing that then relocates the story to a different point in time and then continues from that point in time. And it's very disorienting. And you're never quite sure where you are, which I guess is, is part of the point, isn't it? Yeah. The, the thing that makes the book brilliant and also... <laughs> maddening to read and yeah. and I think it made it well I think some of the criticism of it at the time and throughout its history has been this I think it's just a notion I don't think it's true this notion that it doesn't have a plot or that it's just these disconnected images and scenes when in fact the brilliance of it is it's circular and there's as somebody put it it's there's they keep coming back over the same scene from different perspectives and it's kind of logically irrational. Mm. And that was a great description that there's this, he does this sort of stream of consciousness, crazed consciousness writing style. Yeah. A couple of examples that I've jotted down 
or in describing one of the characters, he said the Texan turned out to be a good nature, turned out to be good natured, generous, and likable. In three days, no one could stand him. <laughs> and, and, and the case against Clevenger was open and shut. The only thing missing was something to charge him with. As a member yeah. of the action board, Lieutenant Scheisskopf was one of the judges who would weigh the merits of the case against Clevenger as presented by the prosecutor. Lieutenant Scheisskopf was also the prosecutor. Clevenger had an officer defending him. The officer defending him was Lieutenant Scheisskopf. <laughs> so, so it's 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 uh, wildly circular in in its logic, but also in the storytelling in which the scenes play out from different characters' perspectives at different times in the story. And they keep coming back to the same scenes to give you a different point of view. And uh, I mean, Yossarian applies that logic himself, doesn't he? Because there's a bit I've, I've noted. Suppose we let you pick your missions and fly milk runs, Major Major said. That way you can fly the full missions and not run any risks. I don't want to fly milk runs. I don't want to be in the war anymore. Would you like to see our country lose? Major Major asked. We won't lose. We've got more men, more money and more material. There are 10 million men in uniform who could replace me. Some people are getting killed and a lot more making money and having fun. Let somebody else get killed. But suppose everybody on our side felt that way. Then I'd certainly be a damn fool to feel any other way, wouldn't I? You know, it, it's, <laughs> it, you know, it's that, totally logical. but <laughs> It's just... One of the things I think you have to drop people who read this book now into a time period where the, the, there's a couple of decades at play, two or three decades at play here um, hmm. in the U.S. in particular, where um, the social influence is. Heller, when he wrote this, I guess, wrote it, he wrote it in the 1950s after the war, and uh, it wasn't really about World War II in his mind. It was about the Korean War. And yep. the Joseph McCarthy anti-communism movement in the U.S. Mm. And he was critiquing this larger juggernaut of, of issues about unfounded wars and just paranoia, and political paranoia. So he was addressing that. And then when it really became popular was during the 1960s, during the Vietnam War. When we really began to question American governmental decisions and this notion that uh, young men and women could, well, particularly back then, young men would fight each other and kill each other over government positions that they really had no feelings about. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that I'm sure I was just going, when I went through the Wikipedia, Wikipedia page last night, that there was some comment that Heller said that he didn't actually have a bad commander during, um, yeah. <laughs> during the Second World War. Uh, and, but he was applying you know, the, the post-war experience to, to, the, to the, the war situation, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a, I, I briefly talked to you about this um, by email that, uh, you know, I, I was raised by an American army, a former American army member from World War II. My father was mm. in the worst of it. And he came home and, and had a family, became a teacher and had a family and, uh, and never talked about it until the end of his, near the end of his life. And mm. he's, he began to tell us where he was and what he'd been through. 
and it was horrific. And we never knew that that's what he'd been through. And I think for a lot of men that were in that war, the effect of it on them came later. And I think Heller probably was one of those who mm. came home and proceeded to pursue his life. And then he always wanted to be a writer and he was, he was into comic writing, funny writing. And he, he blended that experience into this incredible art. There's some fantastic uh, examples of, of satirical exaggeration, particularly when, when you look at the Milo Minderbinder arc, <laughs> where that just goes completely out of control, um, but it, it, in a wonderful way. And almost it's, it's that, that's probably in some ways it is the, the least believable part of the plot. And in some other ways, it's the most believable part. Milo Minderbinder, the other thing I find fascinating and the bigger issue, the bigger thing here is, and I want to make people who have never read the book understand that this book is really funny. It's, it's (laughs) incredibly, it's, and it's the beauty of satire that you can take something so dark as this guy's more concerned about dying and death and war and the critique of power and capitalism and put it in a form that's just, it's just, you find yourself just laughing hysterically at things that are uh, just, you would never laugh at, but it gives mm. you this point. Milo, Milo is the mess officer at the Army base, Army Air Corps base, and he, he starts this massing his operation where he's trading goods for profit. And it's all about, it's kind of, it's kind of Heller's commentary on capitalism. And Milo it's just a terrific name, Milo Minderbinder, and, mm. and he has all these terrific names in the book. He eventually goes on to, he's, he has a syndicate and he tells everyone not to worry about his expanding uh, uh, colossus of, of trading goods all over Europe and the war zone, and, and that everyone has a share in the syndicate, he assures them, that they're all going to profit from it. And he... He eventually begins contracting missions for the Germans and starts fighting uh, both sides of battles. <laughs> he ends up bombing his squadron. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it's it's the, the the economics of the eggs that get me. <laughs> can you can you describe that? Because I don't. I I, 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 can, I can read the bit out if you. It's it, it, it's just just wonderful the the, the way he's, he's he's actually laid it all out, and I still don't understand it myself. But <laughs> Yosserud was riding beside him in the co-pilot seat. I don't understand why you buy eggs for seven cents a piece in Malta and sell them for five cents. I do it to make a profit. But how can you make a profit? You lose two cents an egg. But I make a profit of three and a quarter cents an egg by selling them for four and a quarter cents an egg to the people in Malta I buy them from for seven cents an egg. Of course, I don't make the profit. The syndicate makes the profit. Everybody has a share. Yosserin felt he was beginning to understand. And the people you sell the eggs to at four and a quarter cents a piece make a profit of two and three quarter cents a piece when they sell them back to you at seven cents a piece. Is that right? Why don't you sell the eggs directly to you and eliminate the people you buy them from? Because I'm the people I buy them from, Milo explained. I make a profit of three and a quarter cents a piece when I sell them to me and a profit of two and three quarter cents a piece when I buy them back to me. That's a total product of six cents an egg. 
I lose only two cents an egg when I sell them to the mass holes at five cents a piece. And that's how I can make a profit buying eggs for seven cents a piece and selling them for five cents a piece. I pay only one cent a piece at the hen when I buy them in Sicily. In Malta, you're saying, correct. You buy your eggs in Malta, not Sicily. Milo chortled proudly. I don't buy eggs in Malta, he confessed. I think <laughs> one of these days I will actually get get a piece of paper and I shall write it down as, as, as a proper mathematical equation. <laughs> Can you imagine sketching that scene out as as the yeah. writer? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. It's and and everyone wants to know. I think the first question people want to answer one answered is what a catch twenty two is because that's. The title of the book and became it, it's one of the glorious uh, accomplishments Heller had in life was that his title of his book became part of English, yeah. uh, the English language. Mm. Um, and often it's mistaken. Catch twenty two is not a contradiction; it's an ambiguity. And the and the scene where he introduced it, not unlike the logic of uh, Milo's math, is is a scene in which. Yossarian confronts the doctor, mm. Dr. Nika, who's an interesting character in and of himself, in which one of Yossarian's friends, Orr, O-R-R, is, he keeps disappearing during missions. And, and he, he keeps coming back. He's rescued until he isn't at one point, which is pivotal in the book. But anyway, Yossarian asks, says, is Orr crazy? Because... Yossarian is starting to question his own sanity and other pilots. Is Orr crazy? He sure is, Doc Dinika said. Can you ground him? I sure can, but first he has to ask me. That's part of the rule. Then why doesn't he ask you? Because he's crazy, Doc Dinika said. He has to be crazy to keep flying combat missions after all the close calls he's had. Sure, I can ground Orr, but first he has to ask me to. That's all he has to do to be grounded? That's all. Let him ask me. And then you can ground him, Yossarian asked. No, then I can't ground him. You mean there's a catch? Sure, there's a catch, Dr. Nika replied. Catch 22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat duty isn't really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's this circular logic. And, I, and from a writing standpoint, I, 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 rhythm and repetition. It, uh, the the cadence of that, the cadence yeah. of the the Milo's math, it's it's a rhythm and a cadence and a repetition. It's it's kind of uh, a crazy prose he uses. It's almost poetry, and 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 I just I'm just marvel at it. Uh, it, it is wonderful. Would it be any? Would it be such a such a good novel if it were if it were shorter <laughs> having struggled <laughs> all the way through it you know i i yeah that's a good question i i think we all ask those things as writers when we're reading something else uh, one writer i always i stopped reading i have to admit decades ago uh with stephen king i used to read his his work, you know, is an interesting escape, and I I thought he was a better writer than he's given credit for, as because his his genre is so commercial, mm. 
and and made into bad movies, you know. And and but I stopped reading him when I thought they stopped editing him. And I <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I get in and I go, well, you know, do you really do you really need these next six chapters? And because I'd see these books and they were just beasts. And I said, what are you afraid to tell him to stop? So I don't know. I, I wonder if, if, if the, the, the power of the book, though, is, is the sheer sort of weight of it in some ways. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. I think, <laughs> well, and I think uh, part of the genius of it is uh, he brings, he keeps circling around, there's this core scene, which the heart of the book, it, it, it's really hard to track where the heart of the book is. And that's where <laughs> criticism some of the criticism is fair from people who are looking for a traditional read. There's a scene that's at the heart of the book, which is Yossarian tries to save the life of a crew member on a flight in which uh, the young man's been horribly wounded. And as is the case throughout the book, there's all this, uh, one thing you think is happening, another thing is actually gonna happen or happening. and and as he's and 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 we really don't see that scene in its total flowering until uh, later in the book, and uh, even though everyone's talking about it, you, you you're at the guy's funeral, you're you're in, in which Yossarian walk, begins walking around naked because of the horror of the scene, but he's walking around naked, which makes the whole thing at a funeral, which makes it absurd and funny. But it, it, he has to rescue it. He's trying to rescue him. And you don't learn until toward the end of the book that what actually, uh, your, your hints at it, uh, what happened was he, he fixed the wound he saw as they're trying to get back to the base. And the wound he didn't see was what was killing him, which I don't know if, if it took the length of the book and the power of all the things happening leading up to that were, it may have been just necessary that the weight of it, you're right. And I even think the weight of the ending of the book, the conclusion of the book, mm. in which I, I'd hate to give it away for people who haven't read it, but the ending of the book is like this aha moment where something tremendous happens because somebody happens to decide that bucking the system and saying no to all this and the horror of all this to outfox the system and the stupidity and to run away from it all is actually this joyous moment that maybe the weight of everything that leads up to that is, is necessary. Yeah. You know? mm. Yeah. I, 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 th I think you're right. Actually. I think as someone, I, I, I tend to write, fairly short books and I struggle to extend to full length and um, I, I, I you know I, I, I can't imagine sitting down and writing something this long but <laughs> I I, uh, I think it's interesting the process was he he wrote a chapter in like 1953 and uh, yeah. sent it off to he had agents for some of his other work oh, right yeah. And he had and and an and he had an agent look at it, and they actually got it to. There were magazines at the time. Hey, everyone, remember magazines that published 
chapters from new writers or about the books in progress. And he got it published and there was some interest. Mm -hmm. And so then he pursued it as he was working in advertising and then for, I believe, Time Magazine or somebody he was writing for in some kind of advertising capacity into the late 50s. I mean, it's like, so it, like, I, I having, as a writer who spent his career doing other things and writing on the side and in the evenings, I think one of the things, if, if you've written that way, things probably grow because you've got years to process them and redo them. Yeah. So what I'm saying, it may have been a function of his, his situation, but he also had other people weighing in, editors and agents and such. So some pretty big names and that became huge names in publishing were part of it when they were just starting out. Have you seen the film recently? I, no, I, I you know, I was, go ahead. Well, as I can say, I actually uh, sat down and watched it uh, last last weekend. What did you think? Uh, I thought it was actually better than I remembered. It was a decent stab at it. I mean, it's, it's an impossible thing to to contemplate filming. I think, but it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I, I didn't feel. I felt yeah, the I I saw it. I saw that it's on it's on Netflix, I believe. <clears throat> and I was going to watch it. But I just finished the book. Too, <laughs> too exhausted. Yeah, no so, more of this. No more. <laughs> and plus, I don't have great memories of the of the movie. And I think part of mm. that's the you know the writer snob in me is always well the books the movie's never going to measure up. Right. And and a uh, part of it's I just don't have a great memory of the movie. Mm. And although it's supposed to be a classic, and I know one of the reasons the book became. Uh, kind of had a second life was the movie. The movie was, came along during the Vietnam War and or toward the end of it. And it was like this time when everyone was, what are we doing with this whole war thing and capitalism and, and everything else? And, 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 but no, I haven't seen it. So mm. I'm going to, I'm going to try. It's, it's, it's worth a look. It, it, it's a good, it's a, it's a good attempt. I, yes. You know, one of the other, one of the other things I wanted to mention, if I could, is that it's mm. just the richness, the the incredible work he put into the characters, into their names and their mm. backstories. And yes. uh, the one that always just sticks out is Major Major. Yes. Major 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 was born. And when he was born, his father told his mother that they named him Caleb Major on his birth certificate in the mm. hospital and he didn't tell him didn't tell her that he'd actually named him major 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 and it was a lifelong it was a joke he'd been wanting to do this for like 14 years he had this idea he was going to name his son his with a last name major he's going to say name his son major major and when he joined the war effort an ibm as helen puts it an ibm machine with a sense of humor promoted him unexpectedly to the rank of major, making him major, 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 major. <laughs> and it says, they says, majors, major majors, father had a Calvinistic, a Calvinist faith and predestination and per, could proceed to 
distinctly how everyone's misfortune but his own were expressions of God's will. <laughs> he, he smoked cigarettes and drank whiskey, and he thrived on good wit and stimulating intellectual conversation, particularly his own when he was lying about his age or telling that good one about God and his wife's difficulty in delivering major, major. The good one about God and his wife's difficulties had to do with the fact that it had taken God only six days to produce the whole world, whereas wife, whereas his wife had spent a full day and a half in labor just to produce major, major. <laughs> a lesser man might have wavered that day in the hostile corridor. A weaker man might have compromised on such excellent substitutes as drum major, minor major, sergeant major, or C-sharp major. But Major, Major, Major Major's father had waited 14 years for just such an opportunity, and he was not a person to waste it. Major Major's father had a good joke about opportunity. Opportunity only knocks once in this world, he would say. Major Major's father repeated this good joke at every opportunity. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Right, well, I, I really want to talk to you about the Great American Cheese War next, but I'd just like to ask you a little about the redeeming power of brain surgery, mainly because it's it's one of the greatest titles ever. <laughs> did, you, did you want to... <laughs> Sure. The redeeming power of brain surgery, it's funny you should ask about the title. It's it's more of a, it's a dark book. And- oh, um, It sounds it. <laughs> and and, and, and it, it's, it's out of print, it's actually, reverted back to me the publisher was is a is a terrific small publisher here in michigan and it it it, it got great reviews online but she it, the publisher was just struggled to sell fiction and and but the the premise of it is is how do i i, I gotta think of quickly the the elevator pitch you always have to remember the elevator pitch is a, a doctor who's a brain surgeon and his twin brother who were separated after a, a family tragedy <laughs> that occurred when they were young men, very young men and a horrific event. And they have suppressed the memory. And when they get into their fifties, they both begin to remember it. The, the, the one twin is a this successful brain surgery in Chicago, brain surgeon in Chicago, and the other is this kind of hapless, his hapless twin in Michigan, who lives a pretty ordinary life and, and not very successful as a manual laborer. And the the brain surgeon brother returns home to reveal and and to try to suppress what happened, but it, it reveals actually what happened and. It was it was the murder of their father at supposedly at the hands of uh, the nobody. It was he was murdered and it was covered up, but the brain surgeon re, has remembered now that he murdered his father at the at his mother's insistence, and then the, the murder was covered up. Mm. So so yeah okay it's really dark anyway. But here's <laughs> the funny part about the. Okay, here's a, but it's it's got kind of kind of this thing that comes through in the I hopefully in in the Great American Cheese War, which is this this uh, the culture and kind of dark humor of the of West Michigan and kind of red. I hate to use the term redneck, but mm. kind of culture that is here. 
and and there's a comedy to it, a, a, a bit of dark humor to it. And, but the funny thing about the title was, I would go to book signings and and people would show up seriously and at, and take me aside and go, I got brains. I have some surgery coming up, and I wanted to ask you about it. No. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> And I really, I mean, they would look kind of, you know, really like they're going to get their skull open. And they, this guy wrote a book and they need to talk to me about it. And I'm like, wow. oh, God, man, I can't help you. <laughs> no, that's a, that's, a, that's a tricky one to answer. Though. <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of a long explanation, but <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so people so, like it. So, mm. Great. People like to put Bobby, it in sell. Do, 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 do you have any plans to maybe self-publish it then? Like, it's reverted back to I don't to know. I, I, I've never known what to do with it um, mm. because it's, it's kind of setting. It sold, it sold a bit, but not much. And and it it just, I, I've always loved the book. I love the story. And I, that was a pretty hackneyed explanation of it. Um, <laughs> I, there's certainly better, better summaries of it online. Uh, so I don't know because I've sort of taken this uh, different path right now mm, to the yeah. world of satire. And not that it isn't satirical, but it's, it's, it's certainly more serious than Farrago would have. So, yeah. So, so tell me about the great, the great American cheese one. I mean, I've, I've, I've read it, but it, if, you, if you'd like to sort of give us a, a, a summary of the, where it comes from and, and uh... the, you know, that it was, it was begat, uh, that, for, that first book and this book were both written on this on the side as I as I do my fiction writing because I'm still gainfully employed. But I was when I wrote the, the redeeming power of brain surgery. It was I have we raised four kids. I you know working full time, and that took like thirty years to write in zillions of uh, rejection. Every writer knows that, and 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 before it was finally published and. This one I started, uh, the Great American Cheese War actually started during the George W. Bush administration because I sort of saw this absurd, kind of goofy, goofily charismatic conservative leader who seemed mildly in touch with what, he, what his decisions did and, and sort of looked at the world through this, hey, I'm okay, I'm doing all of this, but I'm really letting the people around me really influenced me. And the, so that was sort of the inspiration for the governor character. Right. Um, gotcha. but, but, but what I did was sort of melded it into this idea, uh, the rise of the militia movement in Michigan, um, mm. and sort of created this scenario in which uh, the militia, and there's also powerful people here in West Michigan, who one of them started a private military company that became Blackwater, which was the company that became infamous during the Gulf War. Um, ah, actually, there's, there's a parallel of that in the book, isn't there? Right. And that's, yeah. that, that was also, right. that was also, mm. that was inspired because that's a local, <laughs> that's a local homegrown, uh, the guy, Eric Prince, who started it. Here's my disclaimer, all similarities, real people. <laughs> Merely coincidental, but he's this, he's the brother of Betsy DeVos, yeah. who became the education secretary. Anyway, that he he started that Blackwater, and he's from here, 
And I sort of, those things all melded into this militia movement in this goofy kind of government character. And that's what begat the core of the story, which, which was this idea of throw all that together and push the absurdity of these right-wing conspiracy theories that were floating around at the time. <laughs> and you see where that's gone. Mm-hmm. And, and blend it into what if they react, what if they built one up and used it as an excuse to promote the private military company yeah. and use the government and the kind of imbecilic governmental figure to create mayhem. And and that's kind of where the seeds of a war. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like the Milo Minder kind of thing. It, it's simultaneously unbelievable and all too believable. <laughs> yeah, and as you know, as history, as history proves, yeah. <laughs> I just mean, yeah. guess I'm a little too close to reality on that. Yeah, that that that, that that's um, it is a bit uh, bit too close to home, particularly in um, not only that. I mean, we, we obviously we we all know about the the capital thing over here, but also about the Michigan itself, wasn't it? That it was. Yeah, it it was. What happened was, if if you've read the book, or if you haven't read the book, what's wrong? <laughs> Why haven't you read it? No, Absolutely. if, if you, the book, the book's essentially about a, a plot involving the governor of Michigan, the Michigan militia, a deadly virus, and it all ends in Wisconsin in April of last year. So it came out. I wrote it over a number of years, and it came out in 2019 in June. And in April of 2020, I was sitting here and in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the news came out that there were, there were militia men at the state capitol surrounding the legislators with carrying automatic weapons and wearing camel gear and trying to force them not to enact legislation restricting their people's freedoms during the, the virus. And I thought, well, that's, that's a little weird. <laughs> so I started getting texts from people going, did you know this was coming or what? And I said, what no. do you, what, So what do you plan to do with your newfound powers? <laughs> <laughs> well, then, then it got, when it got really crazy was in, <clears throat> sorry. And when it got crazy was in August when the, it was revealed that the FBI had uncovered a plot involving the governor of Michigan, the Michigan militia, and that they were going to take her to Wisconsin. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and the really, really eerily creepy uh, part of that story is that plot was hatched 15 minutes from where I live in, wow. a, in a vacuum cleaner store in the basement. And so, yeah, so it's been, it's been a weird ride. I keep waiting for the FBI to show up and do that mm. two finger thing where they poke it, point at their eyes and point at your at you like we're watching <laughs> you, or or some militia guy to go, what do you got against us? <laughs> so what is it with the militias? I mean, I, 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 I <laughs> yeah, we, we were looking at the, the footage from from the Capitol thing, and <laughs> there's a there's a here you know I laugh and that's uh, you know I, this. The Great American Cheese War and hopefully the sequel to it, it 
they're about this. They're like, hopefully like Heller, I, I like to take something that's a dark subject and, and, and also a ridiculous mm. world perspective and worldview and, and make fun of it so that we can see it in a light that we understand it. And mm. um, the militia movement here is, is in part rooted in the gun culture here. And it's, Michigan is, is a place of, the reason the militia here is, is big in Michigan and many of those, so, several of the characters, characters or people involved in that horrific day at the Capitol were Michigan people. But they're, they're all of the same ilk, which is, it's rooted in kind of this gun, this uh, sportsman's culture, outdoorsy culture. We go out in the woods, we do these cool things. And the, the constitution guarantees us the right to a gun. What happened in America in the nineties, I believe it was, was the turn to interpret that second amendment of the constitution as giving me the right to have as many guns as I want of any mm. kind. And it didn't mean that. And it, it, you know, it was written in the day of musket of uh, muskets and you had to put a ball down a barrel and shove a stick after it. And, you know, and it was about defending your, your, your property against threats. And, and, and so what happened in the nineties, the NRA and these powerful organizations and the gun, gun lobby uh, were successful in sort of twisting that into this new thing. So the root of it is, is these guys who, a lot of people who are like, out, it may be rooted in outdoorsy shooting kind of sport and sort of morphed into this, okay, I now have a right to have any kind of gun I want. And then you throw in, the pour on that, the fuel, which is that I can, uh, the government's out to get me, that the, the Tea Party rose up in the late 90s and early 2000s, which was became this kind of really strong right wing on Americanism and nationalism and that there's there's not so thinly veiled racism and and mm -hmm. in there that that these other interlopers are coming in to take away my life and livelihood and American way of life and it's just a really volatile and scary thing and yeah. I think January 6th you know I never saw it I, I didn't see a figure like Trump coming, certainly when I was writing the first book, but the movement that was happening here, you could feel it. And yeah. it, it's still very much here. And that's the frightening thing. Well, yeah, that, 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 that's it. It's, it's, it's not gone away at all, is it? No, and I, th I, uh... I, think what, I think what people in other parts of the world need to understand is they, if they don't realize it, it's fueled by... We had a thing called the fairness doctrine that used to force radio broadcasters to always present two sides to an argument. And when that went away in the 80s, uh, that gave rise to Rush Limbaugh and other right-wing talk radio guys who could get on the air during the day and spend three or four hours just spewing lies from the right political spectrum. And mm -hmm. it became a very lucrative business. And so that then gave rise when 24 hour cable channels came 
it gave yeah. rise to Fox News and that yeah. empire. There is 38 to 40 percent of the population that now exists in kind of a propaganda sphere. And that that empire feeds this feeling that of umbrage and outrage against everybody else in the sense that's why they're still arguing that the election was yes. was taken from them. And it's yeah. just all it they literally there are studies going show that literally they never listen to anything else. They read right. they read the social media that that echoes this and they listen to Fox News and those radio guys and you wonder what the answer to it is. Well, I thought I like to think I like to think that there's so many good and sensible mm. and right and correct thinking people. And it and it's not it, it's not it's not gonna be an easy fix. But we've right. had throughout history, as you well know, in Europe, that are you part of Europe anymore? Sorry, I didn't mean to bring oh, that yeah. up. Da, da, da. Um, <laughs> but if you, if you well, I'm sorry, touchy subject. Uh, as you well know, the the rise of uh, fascism in mm. in this kind of uh, thinking nationalism has always plagued us. Uh, America's just never seen it like this. But I think what's happening in America is the death knell of the pure white, male-dominated, uh, straight, Anglo-Saxon mm. America, because mm. the melting pot continues to melt together. Mm. And, and by the 2030s, we'll have white uh, minority majority. Mm. And I think as that happens, uh, this demographics went out and fairness yeah. wins out in right. homogeny. And homogeny wins out. And I think one of the reasons you're seeing what you've seen is fear. If you listen quietly underneath the voices of all those people who's, who stormed the Capitol and the guys plotting against the governor, they're all yelling about freedom. But what they're doing is saying is, I'm scared. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The fear is, is, is what drives everything. Right. And their fear is that they're going to, the way of life that they think exists or should mm. exist is, is going away. And I say, amen. <laughs> but also, <laughs> I think, I think we all agree. I think it, what will win out in a very painful process is just demographics win out. Mm. Yeah. That's... I just, it, there are a lot, yeah. it's, it's like I say, you know what? There are a lot of gay people in the world. There are a lot of transgender people in the world. There are a lot of black and brown people in the world and Asian people mm. in the world. And it's like, sooner or later, people, you're going to understand that it's their world too. Yeah. We get to share it and we'll all be okay. Absolutely. <laughs> and let's just, let's just read books that are funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you've got, you're working on the sequel. How's that going? And, and when's it coming out? And uh, do you have a deadline? <laughs> or shouldn't or those painful well, you know I have you know I have a deadline. Uh, <laughs> so the deadline Abby, is, Abby is poised uh, poised ready to uh, pounce on you. Yeah. Actually it's uh the deadline is end of July to have the draft on. The hope that uh we'll publish a, a year from now. So April, well actually a year like April 1st next year ish. Okay. And it is at the it is at as as you well know, it's at that critical moment where I'm 
bringing all these pieces of insanity and turning them toward home and trying and wrapping it up and and then the process that I don't know how you work, but I I I was gonna ask you, are you a plotter or a pouncer? I'm a pouncer. I'm a I'm a shoot point aim kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets me in trouble, but I'm getting better at thinking through things ahead of time. So I'm not I I haven't created as much of a nightmare for myself as I try to wrap this one up. It's more fun that way, isn't it? Isn't it? Because the thing is, if, if you're not sure what's going to happen, sure as hell the reader isn't. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, I, I really, I, I tell people, I walk the characters into a room and ask them to tell me what's going to happen. Mm. And, and, I, and I don't, that's, that's really frustrating the day you're staring at the blinking cursor and you mm. don't know what happens next. It's, it's the writer's greatest fear is a blank page. And yeah. when, you can set, when you set it in motion and it starts flowing, a lot of times things happen I never see coming. Characters do things I never think of. Yeah. They just tell me. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. And I, and I feel the same way as you do. If it surprises me, uh, it, it, it will surprise and, and hopefully thrill the reader. And... I look at Heller's masterpiece and think he does that on every line, every page, you have a surprise. Mm. It's like I, I, a turn of a phrase, a way he says something, how some, what happens next, whatever it is, you, that book is not predictable. There's, mm. there's nothing about right. the way he describes a character or what the character does or the character's name that you that you see coming and that's that takes real work so yeah. i'm kind of at that it's yeah i set the yeah. bar pretty high for myself <laughs> <laughs> no, what's, what's the phrase shoot for the oh shoot for the moon if you miss you land up in the stars or something yeah something like something that, like that somebody yeah. we should be writing we should be writers and think of how to say that absolutely yeah <laughs> <laughs> Seems a good place to bring it to an end. So thank you very much for uh, for coming on. Well, I am thrilled to have been invited and finally able to talk to you. So yeah, it's been really nice. Yeah, we've we sort of correspond, we sort of communicate on Twitter for well about the last couple of years, isn't it? And uh, yes, and nice uh, actually... it is, it is. And I and I would be in in error if I didn't thank Abby Heaton for kind of bringing us together. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, but you can, Abby, if you can cut that off. <laughs> yeah, you can you can cut that last part off because, and then tell her I never mentioned her. Yeah, it's okay. absolutely. Because uh, yeah. we're writers and we're sensitive. Abby, and... Abby who's she? No, no idea. <laughs> you said that part. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> right. This place is intended to be free from adverts and portray on request. But if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to reward us by buying our books. Paul is on Twitter as Flower Paul. I'm on there as John Pinnock, and my website is at jonathanpinnock.com. And do please rate, review, and subscribe. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to poet and podcaster Neil Lawrenson about David Nichols' Starter for Ten, as well as his own very funny poetry collection, Exclamation Marks. the button.